0: Welcome back to the Wine Tech Insiders Podcast, episode 32. We're going into lots of news. Australia pulls out of China, flat bottles, Bordeaux fraud, pairing apps, and wine searches on Google. Back, we have a full slate of our insiders. We have Seb from Trolley. Good morning. Jonathan from Bottle Books. Good afternoon. Laurie from Outshinery.
1: Hi,
0: and Nick from Wine Owners. Hi. First up, we've touched on this before. In fact, we've touched on all of these topics um, before, but um, Australia has had a trade war, a wine trade war with China and finally pulled out um, of China. They were doing 1.2 billion Australian dollars, which is about uh, 830 million US dollars. And uh, the... The, the, sorry, 1.2 billion. Um, and, and now they're down to 200 million um, in wine sales. So that's like, you know, that's a billion uh, Australian uh, dollars of wine sales uh, just fell um, over the last I think this has been going on for about a year. Um, so they pulled their office out. Um, Nick, what do you think about this?
2: yeah i mean i think it's you know is is this part of the kind of the end of globalization and the realignment of the world as we have known it over the last you know 20 30 years um and yeah, it's it's no, all it's all, relate, it's all related to tariffs isn't it and and you know and what, what ends up being competitive for the consumer to buy and, and what ends up not being competitive. And um, yeah, it's kind of feels like, it feels like there's a chapter closing in the whole of, you know, the, the, the old Eastern world is uh, it's gonna be a trickier proposition.
3: Do, do, we know, do we know if China's imposed tariffs on, on wine specifically for any other countries? Any yeah, other Western countries? Because I mean, France California, in the West California. and Italy's in the West. And California as well? Because yeah, look, US. I think, I think yeah. uh, we're, we're looking at a much larger problem, a macro kind of a trend where China is emerging as a superpower and as a very large economy that's currently heavily dependent uh, on Western consumption. Um, and Australia obviously is aligning itself quite regularly with the US, right? Um, and it's literally a trade war. It's really, it's literally tensions and it might last, I think it might last, you know, a year, two years, five years, a couple of years. But I, I do, I'm a, I'm a believer in globalization. I think society overall is better off by having countries to be working together and interconnected as smoothly as possible. But tensions are inevitable. Uh, And right now, um, and especially, I mean, the U.S. started the whole trade war, what, about three years ago, just before COVID? 2018, 2019, they started. Um, And so it's not it's not going to stop. Unfortunately, Australia basically had a really, really, really good customer in China, they basically had most of their eggs in that basket. uh, And it may return, I think it may return in a couple of years time, but it basically means Australia is going to have to be very creative and very inventive with uh, how they're pushing wines out because they're currently a net producer Australia doesn't consume internally doesn't consume nearly enough uh, so uh, right now i'm aware that Trade, who has had issues and challenges in the last two or three years as well um, not australia sorry wine australia um, i know that they're starting to try and push more wines into uh, the us into europe as well yeah um, so, so they're I, trying I mean, to find ways the, U- the uk
2: is now now the largest market for Australian wine, rosy wines. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah, sharing. although about about although we consume we consume half of what China consumed, which considering oh, nice. oh, wow. our population oh, wow. versus their population, oh, yeah. means that we drink a lot.
4: <laughs> uh, I mean, didn't that, there's didn't no that, doubt. Didn't that play a role in how uh, Portugal got on the wine map and port? Was that uh, due to um the wars like two or three hundred years ago that that suddenly suddenly it was not possible to buy french wine in the uk and then another region got lifted up uh portugal got lifted up in the in the process um yeah i think i think that
2: rings a bell and i think that the whole um, thing with the irish families in bordeaux was due to essentially bordeaux wines essentially being rooted through ireland or bartered against wool um in order to get access to the uk market because um that had been shut off um directly um so you potentially yeah a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of um uh, kind of british family names down there aren't there in the port region yeah
1: yeah i know like um there's a lot of like Port. I don't know how they did it, but with a lobbying effort back in the time. But even during like the prohibition era, even when the one that was happening like uh, in Scandinavia, for example, like nowhere had a prohibition. Uh, the only alcohol that was allowed uh, legally was port because it was considered medicine. So you had to go to the doctor. That I found when I was living in Oslo, like I found this like old like comic book, like comic strip, you know, that you put in newspaper and you have this Norwegian on skis like all lining up at the at the doctor prescription, kind of making up ailment, you know, like you used to make up ailment for like getting like cannabis prescription, like, oh I can't sleep, or I can't digest, or I can't anything. It's like what you need is sport, what you need is sport, what you need is sport. And it's just (laughs) like yeah, it was it's that's like, the kind uh, of
3: world I want to live in.
0: Well, speaking of <laughs> that, that there's um there's a new type of uh plastic bottle, which is shaped <laughs> a bit like some old medicine bottles, sort of like a flask. So it's a flat pack bottle, so you could pack more in um while you're shipping. Um we've talked about paper bottles. Uh Lori, what about this new shape? Do you think uh this might have some legs? <laughs>
1: I'm not sure if it has, like, uh, like curves. That's just, like, more flat, like, so, like, um, I think it is challenging. Like, I really appreciate um, what they're trying to do. Like, you know, like, the mission to, like, less ship, less hair, air, sorry, less ship, um, you know, less weight of glass. But um, it is just not the most appealing. And I haven't held it in my hand. And I can't imagine it being a nice, tactile or haptic um, experience. And I know we shouldn't be that shallow, but I can see there's like a, a massive barrier to entry. Uh, what it has going for, it has like this flask look, so a bit more like from the world of spirits, you know, like whiskey that you used to put in your pocket. Yeah. And um, uh, What well, I really appreciate the innovation, and I think like the thinking is right, um, I think it's going to be tough. And I seem to recall that years ago, Coca-Cola, and I may be making that up, but I, I thought that Coca-Cola <laughs> did a bit something like that and it didn't go anywhere either. Um, I think there's more education though. The, the problem again is I'm not sure necessarily that the consumer think of the packaging when buying wine. I think they're sensitive on how the wine is made and the wine making and how is it good or not good for the environment. I can see them being more alert around that. I'm not sure they're alert about like. Did you know that glass is heavy carbon? Like, I'm I'm not sure that the knowledge is there yet. I don't know. What What do you guys think?
3: It's look. I appreciate. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that you think you might be making stuff up as you're talking to us. <laughs> um, but uh, look, ultimately, I agree with you, Laurie. Uh, the the shape the flask-like shape is getting really close to spirits uh, and uh, i'm not sure that the consumer will kind of appreciate that but this said we're all aware there is a very significant trend from the new consumers who are aware of issues around climate issues around the planet and Whether plastic is the solution, I don't know, but it's definitely a massive improvement uh, in terms of cost of shipping and um, overall carbon footprint uh, due to shipping. And I do think, look, the industry is, is tremendously traditional. That wine bottle, I mean, how many years did it take for us to get used to a screw cap? And even today, I'm sure you folks in Europe don't see that many screw caps right it's cork it's cork it's cork it's cork yeah um, Um, yeah um, and and that that trend is that the screw cap the cork to screw cap kind of a change has taken decades and now moving away from the traditional glass bottle 750 mil bottle is also going to take decades but i'd like to think that the, the the how powerful the demand from new consumer is towards more um, more environmentally friendly options or awareness i think this might surprise us uh, in the next five to ten years i wouldn't be surprised that in ten years time Uh, We have a lot of wine no longer being bottled in 750 mils simply because the demand of the consumer, I think we're underestimating how powerful it is, how aware the Gen Z and the double Zs and the kids after that, how aware they are of the mess that has been made out of the planet. And these guys do care and these guys will go the extra mile to try and find something that really makes a difference as opposed to be traditional. I think being traditional might even come at a cost, at a price.
4: Well, we, we've also been talking about the glass shortages. So um, adding to the motivation to try alternative packagings, um, you know, that also can play a role that if you, you know, if you have to make a change anyway and people understand or there's some appreciation of there's a glass shortage, so you're, you know, the bottle's not going to look the same way anyway, then maybe you you find some people taking the, taking risk yeah. that you wouldn't see, you wouldn't have seen a few years ago and providing those opportunities for the Gen Z, double yeah. Zs, like you said, to demonstrate their, what they're, they're yeah, deciding Correct. for their A-B testing. <laughs> if,
3: if, if I was a winery today, considering moving away or, or at least trying some plastic bottles, irrespective of the shape, right? Plastic can be shaped into whatever shape. Um, but if I was a winery, Trying some plastic bottles, I would dedicate a chunk of the label to really clearly and boldly say this is sixty percent lighter. This uses, you know, twenty-five ton less carbon emitted in being transported. I would really try and lean on that really hard because so the consumer wants it.
4: We have uh, so. Uh, um, We do HelloFresh here in Germany, which is a uh, many people may know this. It goes by different names in different countries, but um, basically, you get your ingredients delivered with a recipe uh, card, and then you uh, you cook it yourself. And um, over the last few months, we've uh, seen menu cards coming through that explicitly advertise at the top that this had 50% less carbon footprint um, in logistics, and like that's. Part they, and when you're selecting your menu, which what you, you you can see which ones are low carbon footprint um, um, menus, and so there is at least amongst their clients, it seems like there's enough there that they're they're putting out specific options uh, yeah. uh, with low carbon footprint.
3: Yeah. yeah. So, they, I think they, the question is going to be once as a consumer. Once the wine, especially for the wine, the slightly older demographics, when the wine arrives in a plastic bottle, are we going to think less of the product? Are we going to feel like it's been cheapened a bit? Well, I think it depends on the price, right? If for
4: commercial wines, we've like we've had that's always been sort of the recurring topic is where which part of the market are you looking at? Or if you're looking at like um, you know the the ten euro and under market. Um, which is where most of the wine is sold. It doesn't yeah. really matter what it's in um, as long as it was sealed. And um, so it's, but yeah, it probably will be, you know, you, you probably won't see a, I don't know, a Margot in that ever, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably going to see, you could see some conchituros in there um, from the
3: supermarket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I wonder from a environmentally friendly angle, That plastic bottle, I mean, it's plastic and it's made to be looking like an actual bottle, more or less flattened. Um, I I wonder really how how much more environmentally friendly it is compared to aluminum, right? So cans are far more easily recycled. So ultimately there is still an argument for cans. There's more space between the cans as they're being shipped, I would assume. Uh, but I don't know whether um, how much we're trying to emulate a bottle, whether that's going to help um, because ultimately what what the consumer really wants is convenience mm. and ultimately to know that they're they're making a difference. They're trying to make a difference' and they're putting their money where a difference is being made, you know
0: mm-hmm. uh, Well, in Bordeaux, um, uh, French uh, supermarket customers have been scammed out of (laughs) drinking, uh, not the wine that they bought. 20, over 20 arrests. Um, There was a gang who had bought cheap wine from other French regions and from Spain, um, and they were bottling it at a secret location under the cover of darkness, adding self-printed Bordeaux Chateau labels. Um, What's interesting about this is that there's kind of like an inside thing. It doesn't have to do with China, um this is uh uh laurie uh is <laughs> this really french against lime. the french psyche i mean is this could you could you do no greater crime than this i mean this is uh
1: I mean, it is stuff but you know like, there's always greed somewhere and i think it's um it's interesting how it's yeah, playing on perception. Oh, the French would never do this. Like you know, often <laughs> the Chinese news, but it just shows like where's this like, like, the money, opportunity, and where is this greed it's um it's always happening. Do we know? Do we know how they found out um, that the liquid was not the right wine was counterfeit? Like do we have?
2: Uh, apparently, they um they discovered equipment for printing wine labels during a drugs raid. <laughs> uh.
0: So maybe they were dealing really? drugs and just wine on the side. Maybe this is about the, the amount of heroin that they were bringing to the country.
1: Well, no, but like, what's interesting is like, you know, like money is on equal technically, right? Like for like uh, criminals, and like, what are you know, what do you risk if you smuggle drugs versus what do you risk if you smuggle counterfeit wine? Like, like you know, both carry a pain if you get caught, but I would imagine again I'm not a judge here but like you know not to the same level so I think what would be curious was is how long has it been going on right like it's just like we've, we talked previously on the podcast how like some I think it was yellowtail that just got yeah. you know switched on and everything like that so what's interesting to me with that story is how we're talking about supermarket wine and not so much you know the fine wine that is belongs more to your world Nick um, mm. Is it like a, actually, like, and Anik, is it I'm curious because you just, you are really working with a lot of like fine wines from Bordeaux, Burgundy, and beyond. Uh, are there, are these wineries now laughing that even like the, you know, this bulk wine is getting uh, cut? I suspect like they're story? not.
2: I suspect this isn't, this, you know, this isn't good for anybody because it knocks accidents okay. generally. Um, <laughs> I mean, in a way, you know if I were to be sort of controversial I would say there's apart from the fraud aspect of this the <laughs> the the product that they were creating isn't that different from what a, a significant amount of wine branded and sold through platforms like Le Pussy Bellon are doing you know and yeah. I know I know a chateau owner in France who has a Chateau also uh, domain in uh, South Africa, and and he f- and you know he found it very hard to sell high-end South African wine. in the end, he basically sourced bulk wine, and he kind of put a little bit of the good juice in it as well. Up until the point that it actually tasted quite nice, so that might have been kind of three percent or four percent by volume to begin with. And you know, and then someone else comes along and kind of blends a slightly, a slightly richer blend, and then he kind of adds a little bit more of the good juice into his blend, of belt wine, under you know the same brand in order to kind of you know compete, and and I think that you know apart from the fact that obviously this came from all over the world rather than 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 one country, and clearly you know was was orchestrated by a chateau owner. So, you know, irrespective yeah. of, um, <laughs> you know, how many NFTs and various various other security devices you might have put on that bottle wouldn't have made the damnedest bit of difference, of course. Um, but, you know, and we know, of course, that the Bordelais are the masters of the blend. So, um, yeah. you know, in, in a way, it's happening everywhere all the time. And the only difference is that it's, it it had a mise mise en bouteille au château label on it rather than um, yellowtail or you know some other some other branded label which you know might not have been a problem right
1: yeah it reminds me also you know in the bit uh it's not totally my world but like the the world of that counterfeit art that is so good like painting that wow that's Counterfeit is so good. Does it have a more like value in itself? Like, you know, it's just kind of like questioning like what do you put value behind and what is what is true or what is untrue. Like it is truly, like you said, bottled at the at the chateau, like physically, just not bottled the what you're advertising.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think I mean, that's the that's the real thing, right? Is it just the yeah. the the declaration of the label um is the is the issue there. Cause I think what uh, I don't know the exact specifics but I thought that like to be able to declare a, a wine as French it only needed to have five percent uh mm-hmm. French juice in it or something and that's where a lot of the Spanish bulk ends up in is France and because the number of French wine not of French wine that's available in the world far outstrips any uh reasonable amount of production in in the country um so the <laughs> um so the so the so yeah, I mean, to your point, Nick. I mean, when you can blend a good wine, it's it's still a good wine, right? It's uh,
3: it's look. Like, I think I think it's a bit of a shame because uh, reading the news, we don't have a whole lot of information as to uh, have consumers seen the difference has it has it been tasted by the, the supermarket before being put on the shelves we don't really all we know as Nick was saying is that it's been discovered by officers during a drug ring yeah okay fair enough <laughs> um, uh, I'm reading here that they're estimating that there would have been hundreds hundred thousand bottles of Spanish wine which would have been passed off as French wine um, but at the same time that's a thing as a consumer, Hey, it's a good value wine, and I'm I'm enjoying the experience of yeah. that little product. <laughs> Would it have made a difference if it said we think it's better than Bordeaux and it's half the price from Bordeaux? If we if we were blatantly just telling the consumer, this is not a Bordeaux wine, but guess what? It's better and it's cheaper. And it's <laughs> and it's blended by a master of his art. Uh, correct. And look, I think I think the whole NFT topic and provenance tracking topic is interesting in this case because we're underestimating the creative fiber of the winemakers today right the way that winemakers are taking a certain style of juice and certain amount of sweetness and like literally blending it or or developing it into a final product if we were capable as a consumer to really start identifying the winemaker the person who's crafted the artist behind the product more than just the brand uh, i think there might be some legs to that same as the fake the fake tableau right the fake a uh, fake art if it's the genuine artist you're willing to pay more if that artist does different things you're going to follow them if it's a copy okay look it's just as good but it's a copy um, and I think winemakers in the world of wine are massively underrepresented in, in, um, and don't really have the spotlight that you should be getting. They are the true artists in uh, what we're trying to do, right?
0: Uh, we also came across another great article uh, this week about um, just in general that food and drink tasting pairings are ridiculous. A very good article by Jason Wilson. Um, he goes on a bit of a, a, a rant <laughs> personally and professionally. Um, but he makes some great points that point to, I think, the struggles of wine technology to do this pairing. And there's a lot of apps that try to make this pairing. And so basically he, he makes, uh, I think, five main points. Most uh, wine uh, is, not being, uh, with, is not with food. Um, so 60% of the wine consumed by the high frequency wine drinkers isn't with food. Um, it's really a kind of a new world problem in a way. In the old world, you just drink the local wine, eat the local food, and that works uh, because <laughs> it's been developed over hundreds of years. Um, there's too much choice, so uh, you know there's a paralyzation of of all of this choice and all of these options. Um, the what I w- I hadn't heard before, which was very interesting, was that this your individual saliva can affect the way that so that can happen and then as he he finishes off the article even your mood makes a difference so if you're pissed (laughs) off if you're happy whatever you're going to taste thing differently um jonathan uh what did you think about this
4: i thought it was great i mean i think there all those are valid ways of slicing and dicing you know the topic and why why we have after all these years of trying to do pairing why there has never been a breakthrough pairing app that has made it just on the basis of of pairing Um, you have anecdotes of increasing sales through wine recommendations here and there but nothing that's really broken through Um, and yeah new world versus old world um, having an over selection in new world compared like in the u.s compared to in the old world where you really don't have that much selection, so it's easier to make a decision. Um, and um, I think also sometimes price makes a difference because like in the US, uh, it does cost you a bit more to make a mistake than it does in the older world where the you have really good wines at half the price of what you get them in, in the US. Um, and yeah, it does really you know, challenge any of those companies out there that are saying we can solve the world of wine by rec- by having a better recommendation. Um, in-
1: like, and that's yeah. it's
4: a pretty big challenge.
1: Like for me, like the, like the recipe pairing thing like that, it's just another point of entry to help. Um, like so, pairing in itself shouldn't be I mean, exactly. I don't see like the the be all and all like solving the main issue. To me, it just gives. If that wine can give it another point of entry, like a, a reference point to help a consumer project themselves, like, how am I going to enjoy that wine? Like, just kind of like something that's just like, it's not intimidating. It doesn't, we're not talking about like full body, tannin, things like that. It's just like, uh, you know, great with giving dinner with friends. I think like the article mentioned as well, like kind of like the occasion, like, oh, this is a wine to share. This is a wine to keep for yourself with like a delicious chocolate when nobody's watching. I would almost say that, okay, that's food pairing, but more as a pretext. Like I think it can be like a, if done well, like just another entry point of like storytelling and helping the consumer project, how it fits in their lives. At the end of the day, the chances are the consumer is never ever gonna do that exact recipe as you suggest. I would say it's 99% certain, uh, <laughs> you know, like it's not gonna happen, But um, sometimes it can, be, it can be a differentiator. There's two two, two Malbec from Argentina that have roughly the same price point. And one is giving me a bit more information that's telling me that you know, there's a greater chance as what uh, my friend would be making for dinner. Uh, and I'm bringing the bottle. This is the one I'm going to bring because it says it goes well with tapas. And I'm pretty sure we're having appetizer at the beginning. That's a kind of food pairing. Again, not for all the wine, but I can see working. Yeah, sorry, it was a bit of a rant here, but like mostly the social food pairing, I would put it more that way, like the occasion of the food, maybe more than the food itself.
3: It's look from my perspective, um, I think the whole idea of pairing. So we mentioned um, the, how many wines are being produced around the world, right? The fragmentation of the market and how many different products there is. There's too many products for consumers to truly be able to know what they want at large, right? Genuinely speaking, consumers, they walk into bottle shops and they're not so sure they kind of have a rough idea really. Um, and and the, the food pairing is really just an avenue to try and say, well, look, if you happen to have fish tonight, this might be a good match. Um, I think the product is so complex that it's it's probably, look, it's, it's marketing, it's marketing more than anything, right? i'm having fish i'm having tuna fish oh i'm having a white fish oh i'm having uh, i think Laurie is touching an interesting point here and i also feel the new demographics the new generations i'm not sure that they care so much for you know how many points uh, they, that, that wine got and is it a good fit is it not a good fit i think the experience behind it. And that's where the wine industry is really all about the experience, especially the wine industry. Um, And how do we communicate that experience? How do we allow people to remind themselves of how great of a wine this was and you need to have it again. It's going to be as good of a moment again. Um, I think this is where things are developing more and more uh far more than yeah look i mean food pairings are probably going to be around for you know for a bit longer it's a good marketing little thing right i i don't want to as a consumer i don't want to think too much about it i just want a great bottle of wine with that kind of a dish okay yeah. somebody just tell me
1: mm-hmm. right
3: i don't want to make I, the, the the decision
1: and apparently it's also uh google searched like uh, i don't have the number in front of me but like we did um way back out, Shandri did a bit of an article on like recipe and food pairing, and it is a really common what goes well with lamb, you know, like it's just not like the recipe of lamb or thing like that. And it's it's oversimplifying, but I think there's still a bit of this appetite and it's not, I would argue, not see just for the taste, but it's also for the person not to feel dumb at the table. I think it's so a part of smartness to wine that food is a nice entry point to go with it because you can talk about it as a dinner table and that's why i think it's more the social aspect like the conversation piece maybe more than the taste bud piece
3: it's interesting because um, oh, yeah, of- look i i do think um sorry sorry david uh, i do think that taste and the pairing is very subjective and ultimately i use quite often Uh, The example of dark, like tart cherries, big tart cherries. Uh, I was born in Quebec and the cherries we get on the market are imported from bloody Mexico or whatnot. And they land on the shelves and they're dark and they're plump and they're sweet and they're soft. Uh, I then moved to Australia as a young teen. Uh, and in Australia, the second they come off, when they're in season in December, they are massive, they're crunchy, they're red, they're crisp. Mm. So when I read behind a label hints of dark cherries or tart cherries, which one do you are you referring to? Right. It's yeah. completely <laughs> subjective. And whether you're going to like this one with a piece of lamb, yeah, there are some trends of you know, acidity versus fat versus yeah, okay, I kind of get that, but genuinely it's all subjective. All subjective.
0: We have some uh, trends from Google um, and wine searches. I'm going to give a couple of stats and then just hit one of you up and get a reaction uh, for, for the end of this. Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. Um, ben Naturel, natural wine, saw a three-fold increase. Um, what, have you, what do you know about that? Have you seen that? Do you...
4: Do... No, I think it's... Um you know these the trends by market i guess you have to look at where the search is happening um this is something that i would have been surprised to see that increase in the uk because uh um i think those trends are already a bit more more established in the uk if uh, this is more speaking to like the us i could i could i could see some i could see a trend like that taking off um there due to some marketing campaign but I think in certain markets, this is already very well established.
3: Really? So you're, you're suggesting that the natural wines are more established and more understood and more mature in the European market versus the American market? I, I wouldn't necessarily
4: group all of the Europe into into one, but I, I would sort of say that the trends tend to follow, at least from what we see from events, the trends um, tend to start in the UK, and then percolate over through the netherlands perhaps into denmark and then perhaps out from uh from from there um but there's it's it's definitely not uniform at all but no, um, no, no, if no, you, no, like no, if you're looking I, at vegan wines and stuff like the the uk has the like that, that trend started in the uk ages ago um
2: and I think it, and I think you know there is a question which is what is what is defined as natural wine these days as well, because there are two you know pretty sort of polar ends of the spectrum and I think producers are now getting into making much more natural wine, natural winemakers that were on the kind of fairly extreme end people um you know um in high in high quality growing areas too, such as Aetna, um, are now are now making um natural wines with an absolute minimal amount of uh, additive just before bottling such that they still qualify as being natural wines and and frankly they're 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 brilliant
3: and and david to go back onto your number uh, grow, growing threefold, uh i think we need to be mindful that the concept of the natural wine <laughs> Was it? Th- yeah, and exactly. If you're starting with you know a hundred hectoliters and you're going to <laughs> three hundred, well, it's a threefold increase. Um, and and ultimately, in in the world of wine, this is a new trend, so it's going to keep growing. Uh, I think it also goes back to the consumer demand, where consumers are increasingly wanting something that's not manipulated. Uh, not full of sugar, not mass produced, not increasingly there's an amount of transparency in, in the food and beverage industry. Uh, and uh, consumers are seeking whatever it means to be natural, whatever it means to be biodynamic and or organic uh, and, and minimal intervention. And in line with that, minimal impact on the planet, um, not look that most consumers still buy at a bottle shop, right? Uh, but if we're capable of of pushing the message through, uh, through the label or, or in some way, shape or form that this wine is natural, this wine is biodynamic, this wine has X and Y and Z characteristics, which impact the planet in a good way, um, I do think these wines will keep on selling more and more and more, uh, at least for the next decade. Give it a good decade before another trend or another fad kind of comes in, you know. Well, uh,
0: even hotter than natural wines, five-fold increase in non-alcoholic wines. Lori, are you seeing a lot more non-alcoholic wines?
1: Um, we've seen a lot more lighter wines. Um, we've been doing an out channel a lot of visual asset, like visual product content for lighter. I'm talking 6.5%. Uh, so usually they go like lighter alcohol and right away it's also like lighter calories so usually that goes hand in hand um uh so we've seen a lot of that honestly very we've seen a little bit um like you know via osmosis like this is a brand that we saw but i would say for us just like and it looks like almost like um the wineries are approaching it as a there's two ways that we see it sometimes they take one non-established um you know like they're Flagship Chardonnay or something like that. And they do the light version of it, which makes me want to taste it to see how it compares. Because I think the winery is like, obviously building the image of like something that's very famous and then it, but how does that translate? And sometimes just like really pure new brand play of like being a light and proud of it, um, but not a ton of fully, fully de-alkalized. I gotta say, I had a friend that did uh dry January or whatever that is. I've never done it in my life, but um and she bought some expensive non-alcoholic wine and it was terrible. <laughs> like it was really not good grape juice. And it's just like yeah, um, I'm curious about that. I think lighter you get a better taste and you still have the, the marketing and the but the consumer is wanting, totally dealkalized. I'm not sold because for me the wines that I've tested, I've tested a few. They just taste terrible. The one yes, I've-
3: look, I think I think um, I, I, I'm I'm not personally a big fan of you know alcohol-free wine or low-alcohol wines. It's it's I agree with Laurie. Everything I've tasted, I'm yet to be convinced that it's a a suitable replacement to wine. But I think the argument is that. It's not meant to be a replacement. Uh, It's meant to be a slightly different drink, same as alcohol-free beers, which were shit 15 years ago and are increasingly, look, not bad, not bad, right? It's an interesting drink. Uh, And I was reading recently, I mean, most of you would have seen around the world, uh, there's an increasing amount of pressure to decriminalize um, weed or marijuana or pot or whatever you call it. And it's now been decriminalized, borderline legalized in many um, Western countries. uh, I am now seeing an increasing amount of, okay, well, should we just decriminalize hard drugs to just try and break down the cartels and try and break down. So the whole point here is that there's a trend, there's a movement towards what is criminal, what is not criminal? And to a certain extent, the way we're controlling alcohol, the way we're controlling wine, it, look, it's still intoxicating people. Uh, and the whole drinking in moderation is a challenge. And you're seeing the industry fighting as to, you know, should we or should we not drink wine? Um, and, and I think there's a, a much larger trend that's kind of shaping up towards, let's call it, yeah, responsible, conscious consumption you don't have to get shit-faced to enjoy a good wine or you don't have to have a whole bottle if you're four of you you don't need to have four bottles uh, to enjoy the product Uh, and i think what we're seeing with the alcohol-free wines is the other extreme people who are basically saying i don't want to get shit-faced i don't want to get intoxicated i still want to enjoy the product um so it'll look i think it'll keep growing
0: Nick, there's all this noise about these trends and everything, but still, the top three churches are Champagne, Bordeaux, and Burgundy. I mean, it is incredible that there these brands, these regions are just so pop, so powerful still.
2: Yeah, and they are rather self-selecting as well because it's the people who you know who uh, enjoy fine wine, if you like, who are doing all the searches. I suspect um but uh yeah it's the, it's the power of the uh it's
3: the power of the brand. is it fair to say or we're also making at, at it's, it. sorry it's like it's decades in the making right champagne has been working as a region to protect the name champagne around the world not for not for five ten years we're talking decades we're talking in the 60s they were working at it so we've been you know, we've, we've been we've been educated that this is such a, an icon. Bordeaux is such an icon. Um, so yes, look, these regions I've got, I've got are way ahead of any other regions in the world. Napa is doing a pretty decent job at it. Fantastic job, I uh, think, yeah. They're doing a good job. But at the same time, I think Napa is increasingly over, not overpricing itself. They're getting the money they're able to get out of the product. Uh, But it's a challenge from most consumers, right? You can find a pretty decent champagne bottle for less than a hundred bucks. Napa wine's less than a hundred bucks. There's still a bunch of them, but uh, less and less and less and less, right? Capitalism at its best. Um, Did I just say that?
0: And overall, uh, wine searches on Google uh, were up 30% since 2019. This year was 6%. Does thats that... in line does that sound right sab what are you thinking what are you seeing from e-commerce Uh does that sound uh, right?
3: look it's interesting e- e-commerce is very very strong right we deal with small wineries genuinely speaking and, and e-commerce anyone who's been uh, ready to sell wine online digitally touch free curbside pickup slash delivery um has done really well in the last sort of a two or three years the challenge the wineries who've had challenges with e-commerce was really those wineries who didn't really do much marketing uh, much you know emailing and social media and different things Uh, but genuinely e-commerce is really good Uh, i am surprised that wine searches are up 30 percent because I can't explain why. Well, would in, but in the so period
2: 2019 onwards, right? So that kind of correlates with when. So people during would, COVID, would have stopped drinking in restaurants and bars. Yeah, and okay, went fair on point. To drinking at home, and therefore, you know, try either they know either more. they had a favourite e e-com shop or they used Google to find to try and find one that they were um, interested in buying from. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it and, does and the that has dropped off down to plus six percent
3: at this point well now the world's opened up and the restaurants are full kind of makes sense too yeah because look i think i think we know broadly speaking that wine consumption is growing worldwide marginally on a sort of a decade by decade uh, wine is still growing we're looking at a not quite 400 billion dollars a year kind of a market. Um, so it's a decent-sized market, growing about four percent a year. But when you look at spirits and cocktails and craft beers/slash non-alcoholic beers, these are growing much faster. Uh, and that's where wine is really sort of a stable, whereas the other ones are really peaking. Whether they're going to stay like keep on growing is a different topic. Um, But wine, I don't feel personally, I don't see that wine is really adjusting well to the new trends and the new ways that consumers want to be communicated with.
0: Well, that was episode 32 of the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. I'd like to thank our insiders, Laurie from Outshinery, Nick from Wine Owners, Seb from Trolley. We'll see you all in a few weeks.
3: Nice one, guys. Catch you later. Ciao.